Hello and welcome to Frightfully Uninformed. I'm Martin. And I'm Melinda. We are a couple of movie fans who don't really get why some people get so fanatically devoted to horror. We are on a mission to watch scary movies, starting at the beginning and moving through the years however the hell we feel like it. Please be warned, we'll be swearing and spoiling up a storm. If you want to reach us, you can contact us by email at frightfullyuninformed at gmail.com, on Twitter at FrightPod, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash frightfullyuninformed. So I have a couple corrections to the last podcast, Melinda. Oh, you do? It turns out that paleo is a diet and not an albino coolio cover act. <laughs> also, Hannibal Lecter was not a college professor and he did not teach his classes from a Hannibal Lectern. <laughs> I don't know why you said that. And this one's my I bad. I was misinformed. Despite what Billy Corgan says, the world is in fact not a vampire. As it turns <laughs> out, Billy Corgan is a musician and not a geologist. Live and learn. That's what I always say. Today we are watching 1936's The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead was directed by Michael Curtis, who also directed some classics such as Angels with Dirty Faces, (laughs) White Christmas, and Casablanca. White Christmas and Casablanca are both very good, so maybe Angels with Dirty Faces is really a good movie. Sounds like it'd be about prostitution. I don't know. The Walking Dead stars Boris Karloff as John Elman, Ricardo Cortez as Mr. Nolan. He's new. Edmund Gwen as Dr. Even Beaumont, and Marguerite mm. Churchill as Nancy. Even Beaumont. That's a name you can sink your teeth into. Beaumont was in White Zombie, yes. too. I wonder if this is related to that Beaumont. Can't possibly be. I assume, based on the title, we're dealing with another voodoo zombie movie here. <laughs> so maybe there's like just like a gang of traveling Beaumonts. I think Beaumont was just like the name to have back in the 30s. So this movie was actually produced by Warner Brothers and not oh. Universal or Paramount or any other movie studio that we've seen so far. That's interesting. As we always do here at the top of the show, let's find out what you already know about this movie and what you expect from it. Well, I have to admit, I read a small synopsis, so I don't know if you want to go first. Sure, I'll go first. Okay. I have absolutely no idea what to expect from this. Mm -hmm. I assume that this is a zombie movie, as I said before. Yes. And we're going to be dealing with voodoo zombies here, so I think maybe it'll just be another run-of-the-mill thing. Maybe not quite as good or enjoyable as White Zombie, because there's a... (laughs) palpable lack of Lugosi in this movie. Oh, gosh. Yeah, but you have Karloff. Karloff. One name. (laughs) I was hoping to get some Prince or Bono in this. (laughs) But nope, just Karloff. And maybe the reason why we don't know any of these actors or none of the regulars appear in this is because those are all universal contract players. It could be, or it may just be the fact that we don't know shit about any of the actors from the 1930s. I highly doubt that. (laughs) Given that the entirety of my knowledge of 1930s movies has come from movies that we watched for this. Yeah. I think I know all of them. I know know pretty much everything you need to know. You're the expert. Pretty much. Okay. I don't know if this movie is going to be scary. I hope it's scary. I hope we get something unique, something different. I know this is going to be a Hayes Code movie, so it's probably going to be pretty tame. Uh, I hope they're able to sneak in something psychological and interesting That'd in this. Cool. This might be our first Latino that we've seen, because Richard Cortez, I mean, I'm just jumping to conclusions here. Excuse me, Ricardo Cortez. Oh, Ricardo. I called him Richard. <laughs> I'm sure he's Cuban. <laughs> I don't know. That could be our first Latino. And, I mean, he has billing right alongside Karloff, so he, he must be somebody. Maybe he's Spanish. He, he, he's from España. Why is that so fun to do? (laughs) The small synopsis I read basically just said this was about a pianist who gets framed for murder by some gangsters and then some mad scientist brings him back to life to exact his revenge. Awesome, I guess. (laughs) 
So what I basically thought this was before I read that synopsis, I just figured it was a zombie movie, which it sounds like it will be. Yeah. I don't know if there's voodoo involved or if this really is just one of those like science is bad. It sounds a little bit like a Frankenstein ripoff the way you described it. Oh, it completely does. I mean, except I think this is like a little bit of a mobster movie as well because Mm. we have these gang members that... Gang members. I'm sorry. Yeah, Ricardo Cortez is in there with his bandana and be like, (laughs) hey, you know where you're at, eh? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Mobsters. Whatever you want to call them, no, no, hoodlums. No. They're the Crips. The Bloods and the Crips are in this movie, and Karloff is with MS-13. <laughs> Rascals. Rapscallions. <laughs> Ne'er-do-wells. Well, anyway, I think there's some element with that mob activity, which I guess makes sense if it was done in the late 30s. So I don't know what this is going to be about. I hope it's good. Let's hope so. <laughs> All right, let's go watch this movie. And we are back. Yep. We just finished watching The Walking Dead, 1936. Melinda, do you want to get us started with a story summary? A gang of racketeers frames a down-on-his-luck John Elman for murder. After a trial finds him guilty, evidence is brought forth proving his innocence. But it is too late, and he is executed anyway. Doctor sees an opportunity to use an experimental procedure to restore him to life. But is that entirely possible? Desirable? (laughs) Nice. A classic, as always. (laughs) That's not the synopsis I read, but it's, still, it's decent. So you want to hear some trivia for this? Yes. There was really not a whole lot about this movie in terms of trivia, so I only have a handful of facts. Okay. So the Lindbergh heart that was depicted in the film was yeah. actually a pretty faithful recreation of a perfusion pump. Uh, yeah, that's what it looked like. Which is a device created and designed by Charles Lindbergh with the express purpose of keeping organs alive outside the body by circulating liquids through them. You have to admit, Charles Lindbergh was... A very interesting man. So many things happened to him in the course of his lifetime, and not to mention stuff like this that just comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and the only conclusion I had was that all of these areas were so primitive back then that there was a lot of opportunity for a person to move from subject to subject. Yeah, but I mean, he was still doing it. I guess, but he's no James <laughs> Franco. The second one, this movie was filmed in only 18 days. It's not a very long movie. The accident scene in this movie was shot in Griffith Park in Hollywood. Oh, that's neat. I wouldn't have been able to tell. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the idea, right? Yeah, it was dark. (laughs) A lot of places in Hollywood look different or unique or not like California for the express purposes of filming things there. That's what it seems like. And the last piece of trivia I have is the character of Elman was originally meant to be more mute and very agile. But Boris Karloff wanted to change the character because he thought it would be silly if Elman moved fast. (laughs) And he also thought that if Elman didn't talk much, he'd be too much like Frankenstein. Well, so wait a minute. Elman post-resurrection was supposed to be fast? Specifically, they said like Tarzan. Oh, so that is weird. Boris Karloff had the character changed, making him talk more to be less like Frankenstein and move a lot slower to be more like Frankenstein. I mean, there it's were just a trade-off. What's the difference? There were elements that were similar, but I think that the quick moving would have been silly. Absolutely. Yeah. Although I think in later years they found ways to do that and not make it bad. You know, like we can yeah. have quick moving monsters now. Um, <laughs> do you think maybe part of the problem with Karloff was just like quick moving? Oh, yeah, I don't know if I like, can do that i've had a broken hip and i'm, I'm 40, like 40 i have arthritis years old that's not happening <laughs> it's like i have an idea he's very slow moving 
<laughs> Wait, hold up. You might actually be very surprised to know that I have some trivia. All right, let's hear it. So before we watched the movie, I speculated that Ricardo Cortez might be our first Latino. That is false. That is so false. He's Jewish. <laughs> really? Yes. Ricardo Cortez changed his name from Jacob Krantz <laughs> to appeal to the whole like Latin lover persona. He thought it would help him as an actor. And then... Was it even like Jacob Richard Krantz? I mean, where did Ricardo come from? Out of his ass. And then it became a little bit of a scandal. How smelly. Because it started to come out that he wasn't Latino. He was Jewish. So after the rumors started to circulate, the studio started to play him off as a Frenchman. Oh, okay. Just because, to kind of cover up. Yeah, which that's, I, <laughs> that's the middle ground between Latino and Jewish. French. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've heard of actors changing their names before, but this one's pretty funny. This one changes ethnicity several times. <laughs> it goes from Jewish to Latino to sort of embody this Latin lover. I mean, it kind of worked. He looks like he could be. I guess. You were guessing he might be Cuban. Whatever. I, I thought maybe <laughs> Spanish. <laughs> I really got a kick out of that one, though. But I just speculated based on his name and the fact that... <laughs> They did not really like real Latinos in any type of entertainment industry at all until Ricky Ricardo. Yeah, I was shocked too. I'm like, oh, this is our first Latino. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) No, I guess not. (laughs) Anyway, I had to share. Unless you want to count uh, Dwight Fry. Anyway, let's get into (laughs) these characters. Yes. So first we have Boris Karloff playing John Elman. I mean, he did a great job. He always does. A great job? Really? I enjoyed him in this role. I thought it was... Show your work. (laughs) (laughs) He just was convincing and had a little bit of eeriness about him once he was resurrected. I also felt like he was threatening. And before when he was alive and he was framed, he he was very much a patsy. He was an idiot, kind of. You know who he reminded me of? Abe Vigoda from the Godfather movies. (laughs) Yeah, he does look like Abe Pagoda. Oh my god, a lot. He really looks like him. That's what he looks like in this movie. He looks exactly like Abe Pagoda from The Godfather. Yeah, he does. Exactly. (laughs) It's dead on. And you claim to know The Godfather really well. I know the book really well. Yeah, um, (laughs) he played two modes of this character. Yeah. And he played both of them pretty well. Uh, Neither one of them really stood out to me a whole lot. It didn't really seem to be doing much on screen. But I can recognize that what he was doing was different from what he did in The Black Cat, what he did in The Mummy, and of course what he did as Dr. Frankenstein. Yes. He didn't play the doctor. (laughs) John Frankenstein, Esquire. Also known as Ricardo Cortez. Farts Esquire. (laughs) No, I thought he carried the movie. All right. So then how do you think the uh, chameleon did Ricardo Cortez as Mr. (laughs) Nolan? He was good, too. It's kind of funny. It's like a character that doesn't have a lot of character traits aside from just being a bad guy. He's like a (laughs) slimy mafia lawyer. He carried that off pretty well. He was a good looking guy. And yeah, he very much was a lawyer. Like you love to hate him. (laughs) You know, more than any other movie that we watched, I think this movie relied on character types that we still use today. Yeah. So it's a little difficult to look at them and say they did a good job playing like a mafia lawyer when we have got... 80 more years of mafia lawyer portrayals yeah. evolved and it's so much more nuanced and detailed than it was back then. I didn't hate him, if that helps. Well, he did it accurately. We knew what he was. I guess. No confusion. It took some time to figure it out, honestly. Part of the issue was we watched this film with no subtitles. I don't know if we were just suffering from audio quality or if it's like these guys in these old movies, they're so American that it almost sounds like they have an accent. It's that. <laughs> 
It's like overpronounced. It's screen actor voice. I'm not voice. used to it. Yeah, that's not how they talk in movies these days. They talk like normal people. It's that over-elocuted screen actor the, voice. Or like theater actor almost. Kind of, yeah. Um, Just another reason to hate the theater. So it was a little hard to catch on in the beginning to, as to what was going on. And this is something we come across a lot in these movies. Next we have Edmund Gwen playing Dr. Evan Beaumont. Evan Gwen's most famous for playing Santa in Miracle on 34th yeah. Street. And here he's playing the uh, Edward Van Sloan proxy. Sort of, but not really, because no. he didn't have all the answers. He didn't explain everything. It was a little no. closer to the character from White Zombie, who has studying things, but didn't necessarily have all the answers. I felt like this was actually a very benevolent character. I agree. He was benevolent. And you could see, I mean, he's probably, what do you think, 50 years old in this movie? At least 50. His hair was white. He is very Santa-like. <laughs> Was he? Because he had a little Faustian triangular goatee in this movie. I liked this character. There was something just very sweet and nice, and he was willing to help everybody, and he wanted to do good. To give a description of the way he was styled, I would just say Sigmund Freud. He was styled (laughs) to look like Sigmund Freud. Little glasses, little goatee, bald head. Mixed with Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, okay, whatever. Uh, No, he was good. He was a good, sturdy actor. He did a lot in this movie. He had a lot of dialogue, Mm -hmm. which is a lot more than we can say for our next actor, Marguerite Churchill as Nancy, who did next to nothing in this movie. Yeah, I still enjoyed her. I feel like we're watching the slow progression of females becoming real actual characters because (laughs) in this movie, she was more developed than we've seen previously. There was a lot of things that they included in this movie that made her more of an independent character. For example, she kept defying her, I don't know, fiance. Yeah. And he's saying, we shouldn't be a part of this. And she was like, no, I have to do it. Or why are you spending so much time in this case? And she was like, this is my work. And then there was another part in there. In the beginning, I don't know if you caught it or not, before the main plot kicked into gear, where they're talking to their boss, Dr. Beaumont. And he's saying something like, when you two get married, are you going to leave me? And she says, oh, no, we like working for you. I'm still going to keep working. Well, that's another good point right there. She's a scientist, and she's at the same level as her fiancé. They're peers. They're peers. Right, but like the idea of a married woman staying at work was kind of revolutionary at this time. I think so. And I'm guessing they just were like, oh, she's a strong, independent woman because she has a job and she's getting married and she's going to keep working. She did sort of boss her fiance around. Like, don't do this. Don't do this. Please, we can't do this. Let's (laughs) get to this next guy who I didn't include in the intro, Warren Hull as Jimmy. This guy was so freaking spineless. Maybe they're picking up on this tradition of having these spineless, jellyfish-willed leading men in these horror movies who do nothing, and they're like, all right, we gotta have somebody fill in the gap, so let's make the female character better. Maybe. I mean, that's the whole point right there, is his character's really not very important at all. He really isn't. He could have not been in this. So (laughs) he's kind of just there for her to run her lines off of and interact with. I'll tell you why he's there. He's there because they said, we can't have a woman in this movie... Yeah. who's not attached to some guy. Yeah. She's too young for the doctor, so let's just throw a guy in there that she can belong to. I think you're probably right, but she talks way more than he does, and she has more interaction with the actual plot of the story. He's just he's just there. Yeah. He was fine. He was a good-looking guy. He really didn't talk much. He didn't interact with any of the other main characters. He was just there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He was there, <laughs> which is the review that I give to most female characters in our movies. Roles reversed. I like yeah. it. It's fresh. I did too, and I really liked her. So with that out of the way, let's get into a little bit of fantasy casting. Okay. I'll start with Jimmy, the guy we just talked about. 
So for Jimmy, I just cast some guy. He's a good looking guy, but he's just some guy because like we just said, he's not important. This guy, I think he's from Grey's Anatomy. He's just a really good looking, like plain white actor. His name <laughs> his name is Simon Baker. Do you want me to show you a picture? No, I think his name is plain enough. We could okay. just move on. He's cute. He's real cute. Okay. So for Nancy, I cast Alexis Blydell. Do you know who that is? I'm not convinced that's a real person. Okay, I, that she's... sounds like a really <laughs> modern looking blender. <laughs> she's from Gilmore Girls and she was also in Mad Men. She's that cute little pixie faced brunette with the like, big blue eyes. I think she'd be good as Nancy. She's cute. She goes well with this Simon Baker guy and I could buy her as a scientist in a lab coat and I think she'd be very compassionate and everything she needs to be. So... <laughs> Oh, man. This next actor. Oh, oh, my God. I totally forgot. Going back to the actors for Marguerite Churchill, you forgot to say how she looked. Oh, she was beautiful. (laughs) So she was really different looking. A lot of the classic features that you see in like the early 20s and 30s actresses, but her hair was really different. She had super short, super tight curls. Betty White, basically. And then a lot of the scenes where she's dressed up in her scientist gear, she has this like white cap on. I think that was more like a nurse. It's like a surgical cap. It looked like a yarmulke, but like bigger. Okay. That's <laughs> Cover- and it covered all of her hair. I guess it was like a hair hat, a hair net. <laughs> a hair hat, yes. She was wearing a hat made out of hair. <laughs> anyway, this next actor drove me absolutely insane trying to think of his fucking name. Which character are you casting? Nolan. This kind of ties in with my trivia of this guy tried to play himself off as a Latin lover. So for the character of Nolan, I cast Andy Garcia. I'm super fucking proud of that because it took me about 20 minutes to remember his name. He looks a lot like the guy who played Nolan. And he's actually Latino. He's Cuban. But he looks like a white guy. (laughs) No one in the history of humankind has ever thought Andy Garcia looks like a white guy. I thought he was Jewish. I mean, he straddles a line between, like, Italian or Latino. He gets cast as Italian a lot. Yeah. But he's Cuban. Yes, but not white. Nobody has ever thought, oh, this is a guy from Sweden. (laughs) Okay, but is he not perfect as a lawyer? Yes. As a mobster, racketeer lawyer? He was also in The Untouchables. He played one of the cops. Yes. It took me 20 minutes to remember this guy's name. Time well spent. I think so. Okay, so next we have Beaumont. and I Dr. Beaumont. Dr. Beaumont. Don't get him confused with the Beaumont from White Zombie who had no credentials. I'm sorry. Dr. Beaumont. He didn't spend eight years in medical school, so you could call him Mr. Beaumont. <laughs> so for this character, I cast Sir Alec Guinness. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, old Ben Kenobi. I don't know if you remember what this actor looks like. I'm assuming yes, you do. Yes, I do. I know, yes. I know what Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan looks Kenobi like. looks like. <laughs> Yeah, so he's going to be playing Beaumont, and I think he'll be great. I mean, for one thing, he's a British actor. He's Sir. He <laughs> is Sir Alec Guinness. Give him some panache. Okay. <laughs> and he just looks the part. Now for the big man. Okay, so for Elman, I kind of cast off of looks, although the pick I have is not as good as the one that you came up with from The Godfather. I cast George Clooney. Okay. He does look a little bit like Boris Karloff sometimes with the dark hair. It depends how they make him up. Yeah, with the dark eyebrows. I think he'd be really good in this part. And it would be nice to see him doing something different. He would be significantly toning down his charisma to do this part. Yeah, which would be cool. I guess if that's what you want from this role. It is. That's what I want. What I wanted from John Elman was somebody who would delight in being as weird as Boris Karloff would. (laughs) 
somebody who oh wants to give it their all, you know? So, like, John Elman had two modes. In the beginning, he was, like, sad and weak. And afterwards, yeah. he was stoic and slow and very vengeful. Like, he had very. an anger in him that was contained. Anger issues. Yeah. And then, if you notice, he had this crooked walk. Like, his body yeah. was crooked the whole time. And he yeah. had this weird physicality. So, I wanted to take advantage of that weird physicality. Okay. So, I casted Forrest Whitaker. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wow. Oh my gosh. I think he would scare the shit out of everyone. With the stoic stares and, and the, the crooked eye. eye. <laughs> oh my god, that's that's actually pretty cool. I like that. So for Dr. Beaumont, he was very benevolent. He was determined and very curious. I didn't exactly cast off of looks on this one, but I feel like I kind of pulled a Melinda because what I did was I casted a character who played a similar role. So in other words, you started using your head. No, no, no. I was <laughs> I was being strictly flighty and irrational. <laughs> So I casted Dr. Broom from the Hellboy series, John Hurt. Oh, yeah. I like him. He's very benevolent. I mean, he's like a daddy figure yeah, in Hellboy. And, so. and he's got a similar look. So yeah, whatever. That, I figure that would please that's you. That's pretty good. You're all that about the looks. Please me. <laughs> so for Nolan, Nolan was ambiguously menacing. He was like smarmy and slick. Yeah, he was a lawyer. I <laughs> I wanted to cast Casey Affleck, but then I realized I had casted Casey Affleck in White Zombie. Yeah. So I wasn't going to reuse him again, even though I think I'm he glad, would fit. because a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, a mob lawyer, sure. I guess. Instead, I casted a real Latino. Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> from The Shield, Captain David Acevedo, Benito okay. Martinez. Yeah, I like that. And it's funny because I realized that Forrest Whitaker was also in The Shield. <laughs> So for Nancy, she's independent. She's devoted to her work. So I wanted to cast somebody who has a little bit of independence in their acting, but also somebody who could match with the person I cast as Jimmy. I casted Naomi Harris, who was in 28 Days Later. She played Money Penny in Skyfall. Yes. Okay. I like her. Yeah, I figured what the she's hell. She's smart. She's going to be wasting her talents on this movie, but yeah. whatever. She fits. She's neat. We've got the money to throw around in, at Fake Casting Agency Incorporated. Wait, am I crazy or was she also in Pirates of the Caribbean? No, she was. She played uh, Calypso. Calypso. Any chance you have to bring that up? Him hot. So for Jimmy, the only characteristic... Calypso! <laughs> when will it end? The only characteristic I pinned down for Jimmy was that he was whiny. Oh, God. He wasn't whiny. He was whiny. He was a spineless little fucking jellyfish, as I keep saying. Okay, jellyfish, yes. Whiny, no. When was he whining? When he was whining about the thing in the beginning. He was being whiny. He was whining <laughs> it up. He was so whiny, somebody Nancy, brought him a cheese plate. I want hot dogs for dinner, not hamburgers. So I casted somebody who plays a very whiny character in Rick and Morty. I casted Chris Parnell. <laughs> You could, <laughs> you could play Age Boggle a little bit and match yeah. him with Naomi Harris. Whenever I think of Chris Parnell, I think of this skit where he's like half man, half horse. The centaur. <laughs> the centaur. Yeah. Oh my god. I casted a centaur yeah. as Jimmy. I don't even remember his name. Very unique, Martin. So we have a brand new feature on our website. If you go to Frightfully Uninformed and click on the podcast section, when you click on this episode, there will be an option for you to vote on the fantasy casting. Who had the best fantasy casting? So make sure you log on to FrightfullyUninformed.com and go vote for me. And if you message me your mailing address, I will send you a big bag of candy. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into it. Walking Dead, 1936. 
this movie opens up, for some reason, with a silhouette of Nosferatu. <laughs> it's not Nosferatu. Huddled in the corner with his shadow projecting across the screen. It's John Elman. Sure it is. <laughs> it's clearly Nosferatu. Oh, there's several silhouettes. One of them clearly is John Elman, but the first one is absolutely Nosferatu. I will post a picture of this okay. Maybe on I this episode page. And everyone can see that this is, in fact, Nosferatu. But you can't just post a picture of Nosferatu. (laughs) This movie actually begins on a courtroom scene. This is kind of a strange setting Uh for a horror movie. There's some guys on trial named Martin, and automatically I'm on his side. (laughs) Stephen Martin. Yes. Steve Martin. Steve Martin is on trial with his dumb glasses and a banjo for some god-awful reason. too loud. It's clearly some kind of sensational trial because the judge has been getting death threats. That's what they say. If they don't let Martin go, he's going to kill his whole family or whatever. The people in the courtroom are also saying, like, there's no way that the judge will convict him. No judge has the balls to convict this guy. Right. Which kind of makes you know right off the bat there's something shady. This judge is apparently very morally righteous or whatever, and decides that he's going to do what he thinks is right, blah, 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 blah. So he <laughs> hands down a guilty verdict yep. for the crime of embezzlement, because back in the 30s, judges just decided guilt. They didn't have juries. It was just <laughs> judges. Where was the jury? Where was the jury indeed? If my cousin Vinny has taught me anything, it's that <laughs> the juries decide the cases, not the judges. Was but whatever, the judge decides he's guilty. Was this just some type of cinematic show? shorthand or there are cases where the person pleads guilty and they go straight to the sentencing with the judge and they because don't have they a trial. Skip the trial but this guy was clearly pleading not guilty <laughs> this was clearly a trial what the hell that was weird i didn't notice that yep. i was fine with it <laughs> It becomes very clear that Martin is working for the mafia. Or is the mafia. I don't know what it was. He, he was he was guilty of embezzlement, which means that he was probably some kind of elected official. And that's the thing. They never said mob or mafia or gangsters. They said gangsters they a lot. Them, didn't they call them racketeers pretty consistently? You're thinking of raconteurs, the Jack White band. <laughs> no, Which did. I'm not convinced aren't just a pillowcase full of raccoons. So they flash to a scene later at the legitimate gentleman's social club or whatever they call it. They're in some back room and these like the mafia 12, 35 guys are huddled around a pool table playing pool. And <laughs> there were uh, like nine. <laughs> yeah, the 72 virgins are huddled around this pool table and they all agree that they have to make good on their death threats and kill the judge. Otherwise, no one's going to take them seriously. So they've got this character named Trigger. Because that's a normal thing that people are called. (laughs) It becomes pretty clear that he's the designated hitman. A hitman named Trigger? Yeah. That's weird. The odd thing is he's well known for his knife work. (laughs) (laughs) The other characters in the scene didn't really react to it. Like the getaway driver named Wheelie or their accountant named County. Cashy. Yes, Cashy. <laughs> Ira Cash, their accountant. Yeah, so they're talking to Trigger, and then he's like, I know exactly how I'm going to do this. We're going to frame some guy for the murder. Bing, bang, bong. It's done. Bing, bang, bong. <laughs> so they start talking about this guy named John Elman, who apparently was also convicted by the same judge. They know he's some kind of moron, and they're just going to frame him for this. And they're like, no problem. We'll just convince him. And he's also a hell of a quarterback for the Denver Broncos. No. They have this weird negging technique, this good cop, bad cop technique. (laughs) He shows up at the club. He says somebody told him to go to the club to ask this guy for help. And this guy, John Owen, is pathetic. He he looks like he's been living on the streets, hunched over. He looks small.
small. Hat in hand. He looks like the vision of a Depression era hobo, basically. He's got his fingerless gloves on. He's carrying a bindle. He's a mess. Eating a can of beans with a spoon. Yeah, so he comes and he kind of like grovels and says, oh, could you please help me? Give me money or give me a job. I'm a musician. Please, I'm a musician. Give me money. Yeah. (laughs) I need money to buy wine. So they say, fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. We're not helping you. Which is weird because they're the ones who called him to go up there in the first place. Yeah, this was part of their whole plan. They were negging him. We're going to tell him, no, we're not going to help him. But then we're going to send Trigger out and he's going to just randomly offer him a job and he'll accept that. Yeah, so he runs into Trigger on the street full force. But it's so simple to get him to do this. He basically says to the guy, I need you to do some kind of a detective work. Well, what is, what is it? And he's just like, I need you to go spy on the judge that convicted you because his wife thinks he's cheating. So all you have to do is just show up and take notes. Now, it's kind of important, though, that he's reluctant because it shows his moral character. He's reluctant, but he asks basically zero questions. The guy played it off like it was no big deal. He was saying, all you got to do is sit at his house and watch him and take notes. And I guess the whole thing is he's down on his luck, so he really, really needs money right but the first couple of times he refuses he says i don't want to get mixed up in that oh that's the judge who convicted me i don't want any part of this and the guy kind of ropes him in i guess but it's important to show that john elman has moral character so you can like him yeah so the next scene is our introduction to nancy and jimmy it's this cute little flirty i thought it was nancy and steve (laughs) no it's jimmy are you sure yes i've watched stranger things twice i'm pretty sure it's nancy and steve So they're working in the lab together and it's this cute little flirty scene and they're joking around about her engagement ring and it's a pretty cool looking lab. I mean, this is a nice set. I have to admit, I felt like these two were kind of goofing off a little bit too much because at one point they like kiss over the top of this elaborate Bunsen burner setup. Yeah, and then he makes a fart sound and sprays his saliva all over all their lab samples and they're just (laughs) all contaminated. Oh, (laughs) There's another scene where they're eating tacos and dribbling taco sauce into the Bunsen burner. None of this happened. All of it happened. You're not going to watch this movie. Don't lie to me. Meanwhile, they're talking about Dr. Beaumont. He's their boss. They mentioned how he recently managed to keep alive a heart for X number of days. No, you're thinking of Frankenstein. No. You're thinking of Dr. Frankenstein, how he kept a kidney alive in a dish for three weeks or something. No, I'm not. Dr. Beaumont did it too with a heart. It's a very flip comment. He's like, oh, wasn't that amazing how Dr. Beaumont kept that heart alive for 32 days or whatever it was? Yeah, and Nancy was like, I think you're thinking of Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> so there's some lip service paid to the fact that Jimmy and Nancy are supposed to be married or whatever. They're engaged. Who gives a They're shit? They're still making payments on her engagement ring. But they go out for some evening somewhere. They might have just been going home. I'm not really sure. They're getting ready to, to merge onto the street and a car slams into them and drives away. And this is where <laughs> this is where Jimmy shows his spine because he gets kind of pissed off that this car just scraped the whole side of his car he decides to chase the guy he chases him down because he says my insurance just ran out yeah car insurance in the 30s apparently what the fuck and it's not like this is a revisionist history this was made no. in 1936 they must have had car insurance Martin. that is crazy <laughs> to me really so they chase these guys down and they follow them down a the street where they're parked next to a car. Yeah. There's four or five guys and they're shoveling this body into this car. Nancy immediately recognizes that this is not a good situation and starts harping on him that they need to leave. Yeah, she's like, where's Barb? <laughs> the car that they're shoveling this body into is John Elman's car. And John Elman, for some fucking reason, needs to get out of his car and stand in front of the house to take a note that the guy's not in the house. Like, cars don't have windows it just so happens john was at this judge's house doing his little spy work plot convenience 
And he had gotten out of his car with his little notepad. Sure. I don't know, to take notes about the house or something. No, what he wrote down was, Judge has been gone all day Judge and all so night. Judge so-and-so has been gone all day and all night. Well, turns out there's a reason. He's dead. He can't <laughs> write in his car? What the fuck is happening? I thought it was weird that he parked his car right in front of the house. To be fair, this is his first time doing this. It's yeah. his first time spying on somebody. But this can't be his first time writing. <laughs> well, anyway, they skip all the explanation of the police catching him and whatever, blah, blah, blah. It jumps straight to a headline, a spinning newspaper headline yeah. flying at you. And it says, John Elman arrested for murdering judge. He's on trial. He's found guilty. He's sentenced to death. This is also an important detail. He's represented by the same mafia lawyer, Nolan, who represented Stephen Martin in the beginning of this whole thing. John Elman basically has the shittiest lawyer. And I have to say, you know... (laughs) This was pretty funny to me. So Nolan is up there. He's giving one of his compelling arguments. Was this to the judge? Or no, was this, this was to a jury. There was a jury. Yes, okay. This time there was a Th- jury. This time there was a jury. So his big line is, we don't deny anything. He was there at this time. He was doing weird shit around this guy's house. We agree that he wrote these notes. But what we do deny is the charges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my God, I okay. would be so mad at my lawyer. I missed that at the time, but that was an extraordinarily shitty defense. And I remember the people in the crowd pointing out that it was an extraordinarily yeah. shitty defense. I didn't recognize that Nolan was his lawyer at the time. So yeah. that connects some dots for me. Nolan's like the main bad guy of this whole movie. Now, during the trial, they keep referencing the fact that there's two witnesses to this murder who can exonerate Elman who've never come forward. And Elman is pinning all his hopes and dreams on the fact that that these two people are going to come forward and exonerate him. So basically, what I've put together here is that the lawyer, since he was in with the mafia, saw this couple at the crime scene, and they probably knew that there were witnesses, and they kept trying to get them to come forward so they could kill them. And I figured they gave the information to the police or whatever. Do you think there's that much menace in a movie from the 30s? I do, because Nancy and Jimmy are actually sitting in the courtroom, and they decide to leave and not participate right. because they were felt so threatened. So Nancy and Steve, I'm sorry, Jimmy, are sitting in the back row of this courtroom, and next to them is a guy playing the violin trying to make them feel really guilty <laughs> about what's happening. And Nancy's like, oh, God, I can't take it. And Jimmy's like, don't be an idiot. They're going to kill us. They hightail it out of there, and they never gave their testimony during the trial. And Elman got sentenced to the electric chair right. because he killed a judge. We're told he's sentenced to the electric chair by another spinning newspaper. And then we're treated to a (laughs) montage of calendar pages flying across the screen. It might as well have an announcer come on and go, time passes. Honestly, I still kind of like these transitions. They work for me. (laughs) Okay. But the interesting thing is at this point, the movie really just seems like a mafia movie. It's not a horror movie. There is no horror elements in this movie whatsoever. The only even suspense is that these guys are bad guys and there might kill some people. That's not a horror suspense. Thriller, I guess. I don't know. It's a drama type suspense. Yeah, it's it's just like an interesting tone. I wouldn't call this a horror movie. This is what you get when you walk away from Universal. It's not necessarily a bad thing. This is another studio trying their hand at horror who does not have Universal's playbook. Yeah. We jump all the way to the day of execution. And now Nancy and Jimmy's guilt. It's mostly Nancy's guilt. Jimmy is still (laughs) trying to convince himself that they need to just keep their heads down and they'll be all right. Yeah, he seems kind of okay with letting it go. But Nancy is just getting eaten alive by this guilt. So instead of going to the cops or the lawyer or the judge or the courthouse, they tell their boss, Dr. Beaumont, what happened. They're the witnesses and that they need to stop the execution. So Dr. Beaumont... I don't know how he has his connection, but he calls Nolan, of all people. He calls yeah, the lawyer know. Nolan right. and tells know. him 
Nolan, as we know, is part of the mob or works for them, whatever. <laughs> when Dr. Beaumont calls him, he's in the middle of this big dinner with all the mafia guys. And right. they're basically like patting themselves on the back for how smoothly this has gone. <laughs> they drag their feet. This is a really weird choice because instead of not telling the governor or the mm-hmm. warden, they just do it really slowly. I guess that gives them some plausible deniability. Yeah, it basically still keeps their little scheme going. But why is that important when it's clear that everyone in this world knows who the mafia is? I don't know. I guess they just felt like they had to do it because Dr. Beaumont was some type of figure of power in this community. Okay. And he knows that these two witnessed to the crime, so it could cause potential problems. Uh... Or maybe it's just as simple as Nolan needs to stay a lawyer, right? Because if it became exposed that they called and he didn't do anything. But the trial is over. It doesn't uh, matter at this point. I, you're I, think, right. I don't I, know. I think you can chalk this up to an ignorant sensibilities of the audience. Maybe. So Nolan is like, don't worry about it. And he keeps eating his like veal parmesan and yeah, he tells he, the other guys, look, we're just going to stall until it's too late. He takes his time to finish his dinner and then he's driving down the street with some guy. I don't know who it is. Is the prosecutor? The DA? They're in a car with his wheelman wheelie. <laughs> They're driving down the street and he tells them specifically to stop at a red light and more delaying happens and they get to Dr. Beaumont's lab and they make a call to the warden. They miss the execution because the guards outside the warden's office won't stop talking about fucking baseball or some shit. They're talking about like their prison softball team and yeah. how some guy like pulled a muscle and No, they they were saying that this guy's going to get parole and they're going to lose their best pitcher. Okay, because I know that some prisons do have, like, sports teams that, that they let the prisoners play on. The guards get really into it and bet on it. Okay. So I'm guessing it's something like that. Sure. So, yeah, these two schmucks are just busy yammering away while the phone's ring, ring, ringing, and he's getting electrocuted, and it's too late. This is an unnecessary bit of levity for this movie. I do want to go back to one thing, which was the whole montage scene of Elman sitting with the priest and getting his last rites. His last request is to have cello music. Meanwhile, you've got them traveling in the car and... And it kind of played on your emotions. It was very tense because you weren't sure if they were going to get there in time. Maybe there was a little bit of tension, but I thought it was pretty safe to assume that they weren't going to get there in time. It was just beautifully done scenes. Also, another thing I noticed during this section is that they really lay on the expressionist style with the Dutch angles and the stark shadows across people's faces and across the floor. Maybe that's what I was picking up on. Styles and montages and cello music aside, none of that has any effect and John Elman gets a electrocuted while Dr. Beaumont is on the phone with the prison guard and Dr. Beaumont tells them whatever they do don't autopsy cancel the autopsy because it's going to damage their cool new collectible corpse well you know the autopsy is that big like y-shaped scar down the chest I don't think they could have put that back together if they can stitch a man together out of miscellaneous body parts (laughs) dug out of the ground then an autopsy is not going to be a big deal that's an interesting thing too because there are a lot of parallels here with Frankenstein but I felt like this was more in the realm of possibility this is way more I'm plausible. Sure. It is to me. Okay. So I'm assuming they got there right away and they started this procedure. So they take the body up to this cliffside laboratory where Which, this by the way, cackling crazy scientist with his jet black hair is whipping it around. <laughs> no, it's quite the opposite. Beaumont's giant facility is called Dr. Beaumont. Yeah, it's called the Medical Sciences Foundation Research Laboratory. But we come to find out later, 
here too that this isn't just a medical facility. It seems like they all live there. It's a boarding house. Parts of it have like living rooms and pianos and other parts of it are like laboratories. And I thought it was amazing looking as a set. Have you never been in a laboratory? You've never seen the sleeping quarters in the parlor? No. So yeah, they're performing this procedure on Elman. They've got just a ton of equipment. Some kind of electrical current is in the mix there and this like rotating table. Yeah, okay. They should have just raised his body to the roof and let the electricity hit it. Because what they did <laughs> was, was so s- goddamn ridiculous instead. They put him on this inverting table and they gently rock his body back and forth. They gently rock the life back into his body. Well, and then they've also got that Lindbergh heart. Why? Why do they need that? So Jimmy tells Nancy, don't let that Lindbergh heart stop pumping. And I don't know what part of the procedure that had anything to do with Yeah. They linger on the heart for like a good minute and a half, pointing it out and just like, they look at it really close. They're like, look, a real thing that happened in real life. And then they look back at the camera and they're like, isn't this cool? Wow, look at it pump. It's it's still pumping. All in all, I thought this was a really cool scene. It didn't go on too long. And it, to me, did seem more like medical and realistic than the Frankenstein. Sure. Okay. It's really medical. They put a fish tank on his head. It's not a fish tank. And they rock him back and forth. They gently rock the life back into him until he croaks back to life like a frog he didn't croak he started swallowing no he did not his his neck pouch it started to engorge and then his his cheeks started flapping this man was croaking to life like a frog I actually thought this was really cool. It had a lot of excitement to it, and it didn't seem as wild and haphazard. Dr. Beaumont seemed much more organized, and he had two, like, actual scientists as assistants instead of a hunchbacked and, like, a crazy guy. I think that they should have slotted in Dwight Fry as Jimmy. That would have brought so much more character to this movie. (laughs) But the rest of the world apparently thinks this is a really cool thing that happened, too, because it gets reported all over the world. So much not like Frankenstein or Dracula or The Mummy where something incredible happens and only six people know about it and they're not well, telling anyone. This is occurring in modernity. Like this came out in the 30s. This is occurring the in the occurred 30s. in the 30s. The Invisible Man occurred in the 30s. The Mummy well, even said 1932 yeah. is when the archaeological dig happened. I guess Dr. Beaumont is such a celebrity yeah. that this news went out over the... Now that's science fiction. Morse code or I don't know how... <laughs> That's science fiction, that a scientist is a celebrity. So meanwhile, back at the lab, Beaumont essentially quizzing Elman to see if he can talk or if he remembers anything. He's very interested in asking him what happened after you died. Uh, it kind of seems like Elman's really out of it. He doesn't remember anything. He's speaking clearly. One or two words, but so is Frankenstein. He asks Elman, can you tell me your name? And he says, friend, good. No, he's just responding like normal, but he doesn't remember anything, who he is or what happened or why he died or like anything at all he's more or less catatonic he's not moving he's not speaking he's not really doing anything i mean more than once beaumont asks him what kind of effect did dying have on you or like what did you see which is kind of ridiculous to go from what's your name failing at that to explain to me the intricacies of the afterlife I think he's just so excited. Elman is confined to a wheelchair. He can't even walk. Yeah. Until one day, he hears some music coming from the other room. Nancy is playing piano. And I don't know if we'd mentioned this before because it was such an unimportant fact. Elman's a musician of some kind. Out of work musician. He can play the piano. Whatever. Who cares? But at this point, it becomes important because the thing that revives him is the piano music. He walks over to the piano. He sits down at it and he starts playing. And Nancy is overcome 
when she finds that like some part of his brain has lit back up. In the lab, Dr. Beaumont is explaining how Elman can't talk or he thinks he has brain damage because there's a blood clot in his brain and he thinks that's what's blocking him from being able to speak or remember things. Nolan busts in into the office and explains that he's been appointed Elman's guardian. And that he has somehow gained half a million dollars for Elman in some lawsuit. Nancy busts into the room while they're talking and says, oh, Elman's had a huge breakthrough. Come look. Nolan goes with them and Elman flips out when he sees Nolan. Get out of here. Get shoo. He says, you're my mortal enemy. After Nolan leaves the room, Beaumont asks him, why do you think he's your enemy? Why did you say that? What do you remember? And Elman just says, I don't know. It's like something literally possessed him for that moment and then left. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's sort of like sometimes when they have someone coming out of a coma. For when they first wake up, they don't remember anything. And then as they're like walking around and they see like a brown dog, it suddenly jogs their memory. And Sometimes like, dogs are brown. I had a dog that was brown too. You know what I mean? <laughs> But then wouldn't that memory, that knowledge have stayed with him after Nolan left instead of saying, why do you hate Nolan? And Elman's like, oh. I don't know. He wouldn't have hated Nolan before he died. Yeah, that's also a good point. <laughs> He's somehow now more aware of what has happened, the evil plot that He has knowledge that he shouldn't him. have. It's sort of like mystical. He's in there telling Dr. Beaumont to shake your ass. Shake your ass. Show me what you're working with. Some day later, Dr. Beaumont's taking a meeting with a DA. Yeah, I don't know why the DA keeps coming around Dr. Beaumont's place, except for maybe just like the sheer curiosity of it. I know at some point he introduces himself to Elman and says like, do you remember me? I'm the DA who prosecuted you. Yeah, and he asks him, <laughs> am I your enemy? and Elman says no. Says no. So I guess he's friends with Beaumont. Maybe he feels guilty that he sent this guy to prison and he got executed if he's innocent. Maybe, or maybe he is just really interested because this guy used to be dead and he got brought back to life. I don't know. Who knows? Some curiosity. But the DA is sitting down there and I didn't catch his name, but I'm pretty sure it was Mr. Exposition. <laughs> he, he sits down and he basically lays out the entire plot of this movie yeah. to Dr. Beaumont yeah, Beaumont was why? just like, I don't know, I don't understand why he was so upset at Nolan. And, and he's like, oh, like, actually, I, think I, I know believe, why. I believe it's because Nolan's part of this organized crime and they set him up as a patsy and there's many people involved in the crime and they're trying to kill him. And I think maybe that's why. Yeah. Maybe Dr. Beaumont is not the Edward Van Sloan character, but this no. was just the clumsiest, clunkiest exposition dump I have ever seen in any one of these movies. It really was because you have to think if the DA was aware of this plot, why did he still convince? Convict. Yeah, that's another great question. He still convicted Elman knowing the, this. If he knew all this, why the hell did he go ahead with the execution to begin with? I have no idea. Or allow him to be sentenced to death or any of those things. But this is the conversation that comes to pass and it kind of sparks this idea. Yeah, Beaumont gets this bright idea to bring in a bunch of guys into a presentation to try to get Elman's memory moving again. I don't know exactly how this works. So he invites a bunch of his trustees from the California Sciences Medical Board Examining Room Lab Research Facility, 3000. <laughs> and he also invites a bunch of the gangsters. All of them, I this think, is right? going to be like an intervention type situation here. It was interesting because when Beaumont had this idea, they kind of did this funny little thing where he was like, that gives me an interesting idea. I wonder. And then they just switched to the next scene. I'm sorry. Was he German? <laughs> I don't remember him being German. I'm German. I, mean, I, I don't know why I made like him German. But why are you doing that voice? I have no idea. I think what he was trying to do is after he had this conversation with the DA, I'm guessing the DA gave him the names of all the guys and they were trying to see if Elman could recognize all of the people that 
one involved. Yeah. Like, they just made this leap. Because that's something that law enforcement does. Well, at this point, I think Beaumont has this theory that there's something supernatural going on. Oh, I'm sorry. He's not law enforcement. He's the DA. I forgot that the justice system is made up of two equally important but separate divisions. There's the police who catch the criminals and the district attorney who prosecutes the offense. Bump, bump. So Beaumont's idea is to put on a full-on King Kong-style display, complete with everybody wearing tuxedos, where they're going to display the oddities for all these people to watch. I wonder if this could possibly go wrong. It wasn't quite presented like in King Kong. I mean, he explains to them like... Melinda, all of the people in the audience thought they were going to see a movie. (laughs) He explains to these guys that he wants to introduce them to the center of this miracle he's performed, but he doesn't want to embarrass it. So he's introducing Elman to them as a pianist. Yeah. So they're all here to see his concert. Sure. Because that's that's what scientists do. (laughs) And that's the thing that they'd be most curious about is how well of a piano player he is really. Yeah, I have to. (laughs) He gets out on stage and he starts singing, putting on the Ritz. I have to assume these guys all came just to see him because he had been brought back to life. Obviously. Obviously. I mean, it makes sense that he would invite his board of directors because he wants to get more money. But also some low lowlifes just to mix it up. Just just so that it's not boring, you know? I'd be pissed off if I was one of the board of directors looking around the room going like, hey, that guy's a common criminal. You, I would get pissed off if I was one of the lowlifes because I'd be like, okay, this is clearly not our scene. Are we just the fucking Are entertainment here? framed right now? So, Elman starts to play the piano. Yeah, and while he plays the piano, his face literally lights up. Well, a spotlight lands on his face. Sure. They <laughs> use the spotlight from Dracula that they put on his eyes yeah. and they just widen the lens a little bit. Basically. It lights up on his face and he starts staring at these gangsters. And while he's staring at these gangsters, their faces start lighting up. Yeah. And then they start sweating profusely and having They're trouble breathing. They're getting really antsy and nervous. Let me ask you right now, what is happening here? Is it strictly human guilt or is there something supernatural? Does Elman have psychic powers? <laughs> I don't know if it's that or if he's like, we haven't mentioned it yet, but this movie does have some religiously tones to it. Not yet. But I'm almost wondering if this symbolism of the lights shining on these people is some type of... The light of God. Divine the, intervention. The truth is <laughs> the light of God's compelling them to be truthful. Yeah, there's something supernatural going on here. It didn't need to be because in order for him to know who these people were, I guess there would have to be something supernatural happening. But the whole thing with the light... I don't know if that was just supposed to be symbolism so it was like easy for the audience to understand or if it was really supposed to be happening. But either way, I think there's something supernatural going on. Was it a metaphor for something psychological happening to them or something supernatural happening to them? I think it's pretty safe to say that it wasn't physically happening because nobody else in the room seemed to notice. Yeah, that's true. Nobody did. Whether it's God or magic, I don't know. What about just psychology? What about just mundane human guilt? (laughs) Does guilt make your face light up like a jack-o'-lantern? It might make it feel flush which has the same feeling as if a bright light was on your face. I mean, obviously, it's a visual metaphor, but magic or mundane, we don't know. We really don't know. But two of these guys, they panic and freak out. They get up and walk out of the room. The other two think that this looks guilty as hell for them to get up and leave the room. So those two get up and leave the room to tell the original two to come back and sit down so you don't look guilty. Sure. Yeah. The DA barges in at this moment, who just got done explaining every single fine detail (laughs) to Dr. Beaumont. Except the only thing he's missing is he doesn't have any proof no so he <laughs> he busts into this room where these gangsters he are says, Aha! and he starts explaining to them in fine detail everything he believes about them yeah why is everybody explaining everything to everybody else is this fucking dracula what is happening here <laughs> 
that scene didn't seem too crazy to me because it, it was almost like he's just telling him, look, I know everything. As soon as I get some evidence and I'm able to like prove this case, you guys are going down. Isn't that just tipping them off so that they could leave town or cover That's their true. tracks or That's true. maybe like put a hit out on this guy? It's not it's, very subtle. No, it isn't. But this guy just cannot help himself because he comes from a family of expositioners. His <laughs> name is Mr. Exposition. <laughs> Mr. Right. Explainy Exposition. That's right. His parents named him that way for a reason. And his plan does backfire. The gangsters can't leave anything to chance, so they order a hit on Elman. I don't know if they made the phone call directly from the Science Foundation Research Institute or whatever. They asked to bother Dr. Beaumont's phone. Yeah, or if they left and did the phone call to Trigger, but they basically got directly on the phone with Trigger and said, hey, I'm going to need you to kill Elman. You you feel like (laughs) killing anyone tonight? And the guy's like, oh boy, I sure do love killing. Trigger was actually a little freaked out and told him they had to pay like three times the normal amount of money. The guy with the extremely subtle name Trigger. After Trigger hangs up the phone, I guess he's going to go straight away and kill this guy because he starts like packing up his guns and shining his bullets or whatever. Yeah, he he shines them up real nice just to make sure it's something pretty for the forensics (laughs) team to find. I don't know what he's doing. He's putzing around the house. CSI 1930s. All of a sudden, this surprised me. Elman shows up in the door and like pushes it open. And he's standing there basically like a zombie. He's standing there not playing the piano for the board of trustees. Yeah, I guess How that concert was over. Did he get there so fast? He got there real fast. Those guys left the concert while it was happening. The mm-hmm. guy made the phone call and Trigger starts shining his gun, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and then the concert's going on. It has to end. There's probably going to be some gathering afterwards where they're going to try to talk to Elman. Elman has to get put back into his room change out of his tuxedo and then open the door and crawl out there wasn't enough time for any of this to happen so i'm just gonna say something supernatural yes an angel (laughs) picked him up and flew him over there so clearly there's more evidence weighing on the supernatural side of this scale well and that argument gets even stronger after the next thing happens which is elman is just like staring at trigger and trigger is throwing around some threats and he even gets out his gun elman starts talking too he says why did you kill me but then it's almost like trigger gets frozen oh 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 he says to him stand back or i'm gonna shoot you and he says you can't shoot me you can't use that gun on me with such certainty it's not a threat it's like a revelation yeah it was very interesting he somehow freezes trigger and trigger kind of stumbles backwards he blows his ice breath on him yes he like stumbles backwards trips over his dining room chair and table and the light goes out somehow the light went off oh no elman turned it off and then the gun goes off and what the fuck happened what happened i assume the trigger fell on his gun okay so (laughs) he's standing there he's backing up he's got his gun pointed in front of him he starts to fall backwards and as he's falling backwards he takes his gun (laughs) and curls it and points it inside his body so that when he falls the bullet shoots him the lights were off martin (laughs) (laughs) right how stupid of me (laughs) I don't know, but a few moments later, another mafia guy comes in and finds Trigger laying there. Blackstone. And they actually showed the dead body for a second. Blackstone shows up and finds Trigger's body, but does not find Elman there. He runs kind of out in the hallway to like look in to see who did this. And he does see like a little shadow of Elman walking down the stairs or Mm, something. No, no, I believe that was Nosferatu. Right. Anyway... Blackstone flips out and decides that Elman did it and he's not going to take any chances. He's going to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, he's leaving town. So he calls the other gangsters, tells them what happened. And they're like, come back to our gentleman's social club so we can discuss this. He's like, hell fuck no. you. He's I'm like, going to Idaho. You see him in a car pulling up. It looks like he's in a podunk. I don't know where. And he's fumbling with a key to get into this building. In the window, you see Elman. And it's like, well, shit, he's about to get killed. So <laughs> Elman makes himself known to Blackstone. 
Why did you have me killed? Blackstone freaks out because he already knows what happened to Trigger. And he starts running right in front of a train and gets smashed to smithereens. To be fair, trains are easy to miss. They only have one really, really bright light and loud whistle. It was nighttime, so yes, there was a big bright light. They're very easy to miss. So Blackstone's dead. Blackstone's dead. Trigger's dead. So there's this funny scene where the gangsters are at the flower shop picking out like a funerary wreath funerary and they're picking it out for trigger and while they're picking it out they get the word that blackstone's also dead and so they they say to the funeralist (laughs) you better make it two funerary wreaths that's what they're called (laughs) so two guys out of what the five are dead next moving straight down the hit list is another gangster named Merritt. yep oddly he's (laughs) holed up in his fifth avenue penthouse i guess he's a nervous wreck and there's a big storm outside yeah the forces of nature are also against him. <laughs> they're they're blowing open his doors, which are knocking over lamps, and he's flipping out. He comes out of his bedroom, and these two henchmen just quit on him for yeah, some fucking reason. He's got I two don't understand. Goons there that are like supposed to be bodyguards. They told him like weird shit's been going on all night. Like doors are opening and they're closing, and I'm real scared, man. <laughs> <laughs> Weird shit's been happening. We opened the closet and all this leather came out and there was was some kind of paddle and we're not cool with this. We're out of here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not those kinds of goons. (laughs) They up and quit and that guy's like, oh shit. So then he runs into another room. I don't know why, but the driver guy is in there trying to shave. Wheelie. Yeah, Wheelie. Whatever this guy's real name is, we don't know. It doesn't matter. He's in there trying to shave and he's listening to a radio really loud. The guy is such a nervous wreck that he's like, you know what? We'll switch bedrooms. I'll stay in your bedroom. You stay in my bedroom. Whatever. Even though the driver's like, hey, you wouldn't happen to be trying to set me up for murder. Yeah. Are you scared that Elman's going to come kill you tonight? And that's why you're sticking me in your bed. <laughs> but whatever. He goes off into this guest bedroom. Mm-hmm. And in the guest bedroom, Elman is sitting in a chair. He's already there. Just waiting for him. <laughs> like the kingpin was waiting for that reporter guy in Daredevil. And he stands up and he does the same old shit. Why did you kill me? Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. This guy gets the bright idea to fight back. He picks up a chair like he's going to swing it at Elman. Yeah. And something weird happens to his arms where he's clearly not in control of his body. Yeah, I thought he was going to hit himself with the chair. He drops the chair and he falls out of a window and dies. Like he was pushed, but he wasn't pushed. What? The first two, you could chalk it up to some kind of coincidence that Elman didn't really do anything, that those guys did it to themselves. This guy clearly did not do whatever happened to himself. There was another force. Something compelled him. Something did this to him. But is it just me or does Elman look a little bit surprised after each of these things has happened? Yes. Okay, good point. Especially after Trigger died, Elman seemed to like wake up and realize what happened. confused. And seemed to be horrified at what happened. Especially after this guy, like, it was a bizarre scene. Elman on the other side of the room. I mean, he's like a good five feet away from the guy at least. And it looks like he's getting pushed out of a window. I think at this point, it's safe to assume something is acting through Elman, yep. right? That's what we're supposed to be thinking as an audience, There's right? something supernatural, some kind of power. We completely lose track of Elman until the next morning when a guy shows up to Dr. Beaumont's medical science lab <laughs> 3000 featuring Big Boy <laughs> and tells him he's a cemetery keeper and he found Elman wandering among the two tombstones and yeah. he, he figured oh i recognize this guy i might, might as well bring him back to where he belongs the california science institute of california <laughs> yeah because everybody knows who this guy is this guy was a major news story so nancy is there and she receives Elman, and she's like what were you doing why were you wandering around in a graveyard and uh, i don't know 
Elman is confused again. So meanwhile, on his maniacal quest to find out what happens after you die, Beaumont is again consulting with the DA. Dr. Beaumont. <laughs> Dr. Beaumont. I'm sorry. I keep removing his credentials. He's again consulting with the DA, which I don't understand. I guess they're friends. Whatever. So he's telling the DA... I know that Elman has this blood clot in his head, and I'm pretty sure if I remove this, he's just going to remember everything, and he's going to be able to tell me the mystery of what happens after you die. And the DA is like, didn't you say removing that blood clot was way too risky? Beaumont is kind of frenzied, and he's just like, I don't care, it's worth it. I have to know. And right in the middle of the scene, Nolan shows up and tries to get Elman out of that lab. He tries to remove him from that lab because if you remember, Nolan was pointed as Elman's guardian. Yeah. And at this point, the mobster guys are like 99% sure that Elman's the one who's been killing all of them. Yeah. So, so their plan is to get him out of the building and, and just kill him as soon as they leave the building, yeah. like maybe out front. And it's a good thing that the DA is there because he's able to take a look at the subpoena and notice that this court order is for the next day, which gives them 24 hours to figure out what they're gonna do whatever 24 hours is not enough time to operate on someone and for them to recover and heal and and all of that i don't know what the fuck they were planning on doing and it doesn't really matter because in the middle of the night elman sneaks out again like a teenage girl sneaking out and again he goes to the cemetery nancy runs in and tells dr beaumont elman is gone where did he go climbed out his window and they're panicking nancy's like wait a minute i think i know where he went yeah she has an idea which i guess is because she was there earlier and just wanders off without telling anybody where she's going. Yeah. She gets in her car and she's driving kind of crazy. It's raining outside and storming and she's like swerving around, but she makes her way to the cemetery. And right behind her, Nolan and his goon are following her. They basically are like, yeah, boss, this was a really good idea to follow Nancy. I think this is going to pay off, man. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're cartoon mice from a Warner Brothers cartoon. So they're basically following her. And Nancy finds Elman wandering among the gravestones and she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I belong here. Yeah. He says, you stay living we belong dead (laughs) basically but he tells her he belongs in the cemetery which is so sad okay so unfortunately nolan shows up with his henchmen they see nancy and elman running around and they go into this like shed nancy runs off to call dr beaumont to tell them where they are and elman has this like spidey sense flare up and he recognizes that nolan is there he knew immediately he starts charging towards nolan and anonymous goon number six (laughs) and they shoot him a bunch of times quite a few times i want to say at least six or seven you know it's funny because one of the goofs of this movie they shot seven bullets from a six-shot revolver oh But they only hit him like once or twice. I they hit him a few times, but they hit him where it counts. One guy shot three bullets and didn't hit him at all. And the oh. other guy's like, give me that. And he shoots him a couple more times and at least hits him once because Elman is down on his knees and Nolan and goon number six run away. For a second there, I didn't think he was going to go down. I thought he was going to be bulletproof or something because yeah. he said earlier that you couldn't shoot him. Yeah, I was wondering exactly what his powers are, too. He did go down. So Nancy runs over. She sees he's been shot. I guess she makes another phone call to Dr. Elman and tells him. She must have not actually made the first phone call. Where is she making this phone call? Anyway, she's in a cemetery. Yeah, you know the cemetery payphone? I don't really know, but maybe there was one. It's right next to the cemetery toilet that they put over the... graves of the less desirable characters i I don't know but there's a phone somewhere she tells dr bunt cake (laughs) that elman's been shot and he's dying so they run off and head straight to the cemetery which somehow they know where it is because she never told him where it is whatever she missed that detail 
In a slight little cutaway, we see that Nolan and Goon Number Six are speeding down the slippery road, and they crash yeah. their car into a electrical pole, and the electrical pole electrocutes them. Like the, yeah, the you, lines come you down can and electrocute them. Pretty much assume them. they're dead. Okay, sure. I don't understand why they were driving so crazy. There was absolutely no need for them to drive like that. They could have driven at a normal speed and still gotten away just fine. Those two needed traffic classes, one hundred percent. They were really driving crazy, and it was raining, and they were like on some country road. They're all probably coked up and... Now all of the gangsters are dead. And as you know, criminal organizations always consist of about five guys. <laughs> no one else. Dr. Beaumont and Jimmy make it to the scene when Elman is still alive. So they're in this cemetery shed. He's laid out on some kind of impromptu table of sawhorses or, or some slab. shit. I don't know. Dr. Beaumont does some examining and he says that he's been shot through the gullet or something. <laughs> no, he says there's a bullet at the base of his skull. Oh, and I think right maybe where the blood clot it's was. supposed to have dislodged the blood clot so he can talk or something like oh. that. Despite the fact that you can't get shot in the base of your skull from the front. That's impossible. Well, he looked at his throat. Okay. Maybe it went in right there, but impossible. wouldn't it have like, wouldn't it have, like nicked his vocal cords? Impossible. <laughs> well, anyway, he's definitely dying. <laughs> yep. There's nothing he can do. So in a last-ditch effort to finally get meaning of what happens to you after death, he starts quizzing him again. What happened after you died? What's the fastest land mammal? (laughs) How long is the gestation period of the Arctic fox? (laughs) And I don't know if it's because of what Martin said, if it somehow knocked the blood clot loose and he's finally able to talk. But he starts talking and he says, it's hard to explain. Please put it into words. You must try. Why must he try? What does he owe this guy? Yeah, I am. He manages to squeak out a couple words. He says, after the shock, I seemed to feel peace. Blah. He dies. He's dead. Dr. Beaumont says, it'll never be known. He also says this line, Martin says it's from the Bible. The Lord, our God, is a jealous God. Which is something that Elman had said to him. Earlier. Okay, so that means don't play God. I'm God and leave me to do my Godding and don't interfere. Which can be interpreted as stop bringing fucks back to life. Yeah, and I kind of took it to mean also that God wanted to take him back. Okay, sure. Um, I, I don't know. Well, he was wandering among the cemetery trying to find a nice plot to lay down in. <laughs> Basically. And that's the end of the movie. Yep, that's it. That's The Walking Dead, 1936. Yeah. So, Melinda, what did you like about this movie? I actually liked quite a few things about this movie. One of the things I appreciated was I felt like they told the story in a very succinct manner. This movie was only an hour long and they got through the story in a very like measured, easy to understand way. And there wasn't a lot of fluff. So you kind of just got the meat and potatoes of it. I appreciated that. And more than horror, I I would call this more of like a... Like a supernatural drama. Not a psychological unsettling movie, but it had an eeriness to it. It was creepy and eerie. This was less Tales from the Crypt and more Goosebumps. Yeah, it was. I also thought it was kind of fun that it was also a little bit of like a mob movie, a mafia movie mixed in. That was really different. And that was at least the first half of the movie was kind of like that. I appreciated both of those things. What did you think? I thought a lot of the same things. I liked that it was really fast paced Mm -hmm. and it was modern and it was set in the real world. That's another thing that uh, the other movies didn't do. I mean, whether or not it was present day, it was still set in this fantasy world where Egyptian gods are real or whatever. Mm -hmm. This movie was grounded in, if not the actual real world, world the common cinematic real world of having like this the mafia control this thing and the da's being afraid to prosecute and whatever mm-hmm. that was really refreshing and 
more than any other movie we've watched, this movie felt modern. It did. The storytelling, the cinematic language and visual language that it used felt more current and more easy to digest than the other movies we've been watching. And I think a large part of this is the fact that this wasn't a universal movie. Yeah, I think you're right. And another thing I want to echo too is in the beginning of the discussion, I think I was talking about how I felt like this was more realistic than Frankenstein. Yeah. It might be because it took place in like a real world instead of some tiny town in the middle of eastern europe it's that not I've a fairy tale that has no to. that has no real world around it this had yeah the fabric of reality it really did and it felt nice so what would you have changed about this movie then there wasn't a lot i would change you pointed out there were a couple little plot holes clunky writing with the exposition that came from the da that took me out of the movie a little bit so i would just call for some rewrites <laughs> So you really nothing. You would just refine it a little bit. I was pretty happy with this movie, yeah. I mean, not to give anything away. What did you think? Number one, I would completely cut the character of Jimmy. You don't need him. (laughs) Get rid of him. That would be refreshing. Just Nancy. Number two, I thought that the gangsters really blank and hammy, and there really wasn't much nuance to them. They were just kind of uh, cardboard cutouts of gangster figures. It might be because we have the benefit of seeing these characters more evolved and more nuanced. But I thought what might be a really cool idea to give them some edge, Mm -hmm. maybe give the gangsters a bit of a supernatural element as well. Make it clear that there's something evil about them. Mm. And then you have a classic good versus evil story. What if they made Nolan a father and he had a family and he was just like a really crappy dad? And all his kids were named (laughs) Damien. Just a really crappy dad. Why would that help? (laughs) Because he would make him really unlikable. (laughs) Okay, so all of a sudden you've got changes now. So what would you say the moral of this story is? More than any other movie we've watched previously, this one had religious connotations to it. Yes, it's another story about don't play God, don't reanimate corpses (laughs) with science. More than anything, I feel like it was that don't play God thing. Why? Because of the lines they threw in there about... But what ill effects did Dr. Brunhauser suffer from playing God? He didn't, but he kind of tormented this guy, Elman. I mean, at no point in being reanimated did he have any pleasure. Okay, but Elman didn't play God, so Elman's suffering for no reason. Yeah, but I think the story goes to that don't play God point because this was all just a tragedy. Uh, Like, five different guys got killed, Elman ends up dead again, and nothing good came out of it. Five mafia guys got wiped out. That's seems like most people would say that's something good well i guess another way to look at it is that god was creating justice and striking down these people and he basically used elman as like a divine a tool. conduit as divine instrument yeah a divine instrument to like make things right again is it sort of like about fate is it about like old testament justice <laughs> I think the moral is actually really simplistic in this. It's a supernatural force that's coming back to punish people who are doing bad. It's just simply saying, if you do bad things, you'll get punished. So it's about karma. It's just reinforcing the moral status quo that if you do bad things, you'll get punished. There really isn't much else to it than that, right? I guess so. Maybe I was just thrown off by all the discussion of God because I feel like they were trying to do something there because whenever they did mention it, it seemed ham-handed. I think they were (laughs) trying to do something. They were trying to appease the production code association maybe to let them get away with showing this murder and these gangsters and this guy coming back to life by saying oh no 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 it's god god did it yeah and maybe that actually helped them because in this movie they did show kissing jimmy and nancy kiss and they showed a dead body and it was really weird when jimmy started kissing the dead body (laughs) but they got away with it you gotta hand them credit they did get away with it and it was done well all right so now for the big questions 
How scary would you say this movie was? This movie is not scary. I would not call this a horror movie. No. I would call this a thriller or a suspense, even. Maybe a thriller. It's hard for me coming from modern day to call this suspense. I I guess thriller. Were you thrilled? A little. I was a little (laughs) thrilled. It it really isn't a horror movie. I don't know how this ended up on our list. But it's like a, a one in terms of scary. How about you? What would you rate it? This movie is also one for me. There was nothing in here to be scared at. Even the supernatural element was not pointed in any way at the audience to make you feel threatened or yeah, afraid. because unless you're a bad person who was killing people and sending people to prison, you're fine. Yeah, really, the supernatural element was reinforcing the moral status quo, like I said before, of telling people, hey, don't worry Bad things will happen to bad people. Yeah. No matter how wrong you are, things will be made right. Don't worry, you're on the right side. And there's that's not a scary message. There's horror elements in this movie, but this is not a horror movie. Yeah. So this is a one. But one thing that I will say, when Boris Karloff was brought back to life, and the way he was slowly moving his body and the way it was crooked did kind of remind me of some of the portrayals from Night of the Living Dead, the original George Romero's yeah. Night of the Living Dead. The way they depicted their zombies. Yeah, you're right. So I think this ended up on our list somehow because this, in some ways, contributed to the depiction of the modern zombie. I think so. And I was expecting voodoo zombies. This was totally different. This was something totally different. Much closer to Frankenstein. So then what would you rate this as a movie? I quite liked this movie, but because we haven't gotten very far and I know there's going to be like some amazing movies coming later, I still have to give it a three, but it's really teetering on the edge of a four. I quite liked this. It was easy to watch. I enjoyed the storytelling. It was actually kind of a cool story. I'm on entirely the same page as you, nearly word for word. (laughs) It was easy to follow. It was interesting, well-made. It was definitely the most modern sensibility of a movie that we saw. And I'm also giving it a three. Mm -hmm. If I could give it like a really high three, like I want to give it more than a three, but I know it doesn't deserve a four. Yeah, it can't have a four because later on we're going to watch Hitchcock and we're going to (laughs) watch Jaws and we're going to watch some really good stuff. So it's like if I prematurely shoot my wad i'll have somewhat of a mess on my hands and i can't give this a four because if i rank this a four there's only a five left and what am i just going to rank everything a five yeah it was a good movie i feel like they did a better job than universal did i don't know what else universal is doing at this time but this warner brothers movie seemed to have a much more modern sensibility and like they kept it tight they kept it good and extremely tight 66 minutes this wouldn't even qualify as a feature these days yeah and it didn't have a lot of those problems that the universal movies where it's like all over the place and they had a million cuts and it's like the story changed and you're like confused because it seemed like they just abandoned a certain piece of the story it didn't have those issues it was like kind of well written so there you go both of us liked it yeah both of us give it a good solid three Let us know what you thought. If you've seen this movie or if you just want to comment on what we thought about it, you can reach us by email, Twitter, and Facebook. So, Melinda, what have you been watching? I went to see Annabelle Creation. I'm a huge fan of Ed and Lorraine Warren in general, but also the Conjuring movies. And I went to see the original Annabelle. So I was more than happy to fork over my money and go see this, just for the sheer curiosity of it. The first Annabelle movie was disappointing. It had some good things, but it was mainly just disappointing. This one was a lot better. But where this movie lost me is the place that a lot of movies lose me. They show too much, and I also had a big issue with this being a possession movie. This was extremely violent. And from what I know about possession movies in general, this was just like way too violent. And the stuff that was going on, there wasn't a real reason for it to be so violent. I mean, it was only just to shock you and scare you. 
I think they would have just done better following, you know, the path of The Conjuring. Following the Ed and Lorraine Warren dynamic. Yeah, which is definitely where this movie started. I mean, they gave it a really cool backstory. I feel like they kind of deviated from those those oh, rules. Did you see it too? They're not holding themselves to what the Warrens laid out as tightly. No, and I guess it's fair to say that none of these movies really do because basically all of Ed and Lorraine Warren's cases end in like... Fraud? Um, <laughs> no, but sort of just like they peter out. Not very interesting. It was okay. It was disappointing. Both those things. I also recently watched Snatched, that Amy Schumer movie. And I like Amy Schumer, and I'm also a big fan of Goldie Hawn. How the hell can you be a big fan of Goldie Hawn? (laughs) I don't know. When I was growing up, my mom probably was watching Goldie Hawn movies like Captain Benjamin or Overboard. She's focused Captain Benjamin. So she's like a spoiled rich girl, or Private Benjamin. She's like a spoiled rich girl, and she somehow ends up in the army. It's funny. Are you thinking about Troop Beverly Hills? Oh, and First Wives Club. She's been in a lot of funny stuff. She's really funny. So I couldn't wait to watch this movie. I missed it when I was in theaters. I watched it after it came out, and I liked it. I thought it was really funny. I'll probably watch it again. I think that Trainwrecked was a little bit better, but uh, this one was still good, and I hope she keeps making movies like this because she breaks a lot of boundaries, and they're just fun. How about you? What have you seen? I've been watching the Christmas movies. I watched uh, Home Alone 2 (laughs) because I hate myself. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. How do you get lost in New York? It's a grid system, motherfucker. CC John Mulaney. Yes. Home Alone 2 is ridiculous. They took the brutality of the first movie, and there was brutality in it. Yes, there is. They really ratcheted it up to the point where it's unbelievable that these guys would not have been killed several times over. Well, for one thing, one of them would have a huge burn scar of an iron on his face. Burn scars be damned. Their skulls would be crushed. The other guy got his hair ripped off and glue on his head and stuff, remember? Kevin throws bricks at their heads (laughs) from like 10 stories up. That is a murder. That guy is dead. (laughs) That movie is kind of crappy. Don't don't watch it. (laughs) And uh, I mean, if you needed any more incentive to not watch it, Donald Trump is in it. I also watched Jingle All the Way, which Donald Trump is not in. I love that movie. So lots of people do. I don't understand it, but whatever. I don't know if it's, it must be nostalgia that makes me like it because I watched it a whole bunch when I was a kid, but it's funny. Arnold Schwarzenegger is funny in that movie and the little boy that's in there is adorable. That little boy is Jake Lloyd who went on to play Anakin Skywalker that's right. in Star Wars Episode One. That everybody hates him. Now. Everybody hates him and he's gotten so bitter. And Sinbad's in that movie and he's hilarious. Yeah, I gotta give it up for Sinbad. He's really funny. He's really funny. That movie though, it's not good. It's also not good. Very politically incorrect. Well, now let's get on to the Christmas movies that were good. <laughs> the Night Before with oh. Seth Rogen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and The Falcon. That movie was so funny. Yeah, that was, a, that was a really funny movie. It was way better than I thought it would be. And I don't like Seth Rogen movies. And you don't like Christmas movies. <laughs> no, not particularly. And kind of makes me wonder why I went through this exercise to begin with. <laughs> But yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is really funny. Seth Rogen is not unbearably obnoxious. It was a good, funny movie. I like that movie too. I watch it every year at Christmas. And then the last Christmas movie that I watched, this one was actually really good. The Revenant, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) Like, that really teaches you about the spirit of Christmas and, like, what Uh, it means to be on Santa's nice list. No, his naughty list. No, he was on the nice list. (laughs) He was getting after somebody who was on the naughty list. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
I enjoy that movie. It's it's quite intense. The way that it's shot brings you into the movie. It kind of like places you into that world. It doesn't shy away from anything. That movie feels like the brutality of that actual time and place. Yeah. And I don't really give a fuck that it's not factually accurate that they made changes to the story or that they, they changed the accurate. settings. No, Hugh Glass never had a oh, son. Oh, okay. I thought you meant just like, oh, someone couldn't survive in the carcass of a horse in 40 degree weather. I don't give a fuck about any of that it's good solid storytelling good acting good directing i like that director so if you're gonna sit down and watch a christmas movie stick with the night before and the revenant (laughs) really keep your holidays positive and upbeat and that's it for me so if you like the show you can support us by liking us on facebook facebook.com slash frightfully uninformed you can tell your friends about us directly like on the phone or in text message or in person you can write frightfully uninformed on a fish and slap them with it (laughs) and run away cackling in the night you can give us a good rating on itunes or better yet leave us a review on itunes podcasts like ours live pretty much entirely on listener support so if you like the show help us spread the word Now, I'm not telling you to hack into a television's emergency broadcast system. But if you did, would it be such a crime if you were to throw in a quick plug for our podcast? Maybe like, hey, check out Frightfully Uninformed, frightfullyuninformed.com. But definitely don't do that because that's a crime. But you can go through your city and replace the manhole covers with (laughs) manhole covers that have our logo carved into them. So that anytime somebody's walking down the street and they see a manhole cover, it says Frightfully Uninformed. It has our logo with a little hand reaching out of the ground. (laughs) Train yourself to replace your default laugh with saying Frightfully Uninformed. So anytime someone tells a joke, you're like, Frightfully Uninformed. (laughs) That'll throw everyone for a loop. In other words, support your local podcast. Once again, if you want to contact us, you can email us at FrightfullyUninformed at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter at FrightPod, or you can reach us at the aforementioned Facebook page, facebook.com slash FrightfullyUninformed. Tune in next episode where we'll be watching the M. Night Shyamalan movie Split starring James McAvoy. Ooh, I've been waiting to see that one. James Snot on the Face McAvoy. (laughs) And as always, Spielberg sucks. Bye-bye. So I don't know what this is going to be about. I hope it's good. Well, I guess I just sort of know what it's about, but I hope that this will be good. And I have high hopes. I'm hoping. You're hoping to hope? Wow. I need to stop saying hope. Is there some hoping involved? Do you know what I really hope is that your hope is gives me hope. And I hope that we can have hope together and put all our hopes in a hope chest. Um, I wish that. (laughs) (laughs) I have longing. My desire is that this movie will be good. Let's hope so. (laughs) Let's put our hope on a pope and go jump rope for heart.